So our sages teach us that just like the Jewish people at whole, there was the 12 tribes in the desert and they had the center, the tabernacle where the Shekhinah was, where the God's presence rested. <coughs> so too in every Jewish home, every Jewish home is a miniature temple. It is a place where God's presence can be felt. So today we will talk about creating, that was the, the title for today's lesson, creating a sacred space, creating a home how we can transform, how we can set up and design our homes to be a tabernacle, to be a place where Hashem's presence can be felt. And we're going to touch upon three areas, or many areas, we'll touch upon three areas um, about the Jewish home. What makes a home a Jewish home? So we'll start with a story. It was a very wealthy individual who lived, who, had a, who bought a house in in uh, Bel Air. Anyone here was in Bel Air? I was there. They had some really nice houses there. I was there uh, on the, there's the local Chabad rabbi there, Rabbi Mentz. California? Yes, in California. Very, one of the, I think it's one of the wealthiest neighborhoods. And yeah, it's nice just to drown. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. It's not the river. <laughs> I was trying to think of the name of the show. Uh, and then Bel and up there with the real money, it's called Holmby Hills. I was there during Hanukkah. The rabbi there sent us out. We were young, young uh, teenagers to visit Jewish families and uh, bring them a menorah and then bring the spirit of Hanukkah to them and their families. So we got to see some nice houses and it didn't take long until the, I don't know, the local police, I don't know what they were, you know, they, they got... <laughs> They have a lot of uh, security yeah, there yeah, for these homes, so they have to know exactly what we're doing. Either way, so this guy purchases a huge estate, a nice big house in Bel Air, a Jewish guy, and everything is ready. The designer, interior design is finished, and pretty much everything's looking good. And then he remembers, oh, we got to put up the mezuzos. So it was a big house with many door doorways. He purchased a bunch of uh, mezuzos with the... Um, you know, uh, with the scrolls, and he gives it to the, he wasn't too religious, he knew he needs a mezuzah, he, gave it, he gives it to the interior designer, he's like, hey, you put these up, uh, make sure it's on the right side and of the doorway, and and uh, you do the job for me. A couple hours later, the owner comes back, and he's checking up, making sure everything is good, and everything looks fine, and it was beautiful, you know, metal cases, it was beautiful, matching, the, the paint, the design of the house, and he's really happy, and he gives the guy a tip, you know, good job, thank you for, for doing the job, and the man is very happy, he's on his way out, and he says, I'm happy you, I'm, you know, I'm happy that uh, you're satisfied with the mezuzah job, and by the way, I took out all the warranties, and I put it on the table for you. <laughs> Inside the mezuzah, right, this man was mistaken that the case, the case looks really beautiful, some paper was rolled up inside and he thought that's just the warranty, but that's the main thing. So today the first thing we will touch upon what makes a Jewish home, a, home, a Jewish home, identifies the home as a Jewish home is the mezuzah. That will be our first topic, of course we all know much about mezuzah, but we'll look at some of the sources, we can pass it around, we'll look at some of the sources of mezuzah and some stories to get a uh, better picture of what a mezuzah is. Okay, we have some uh, artifacts here <laughs> that will help us along. Source number one. The Torah tells us 
You shall set these words of mine upon your heart and upon your soul, and you shall inscribe them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. This is a verse from the Shema prayer that we say when we were to fill in, we say in the morning, we say it before we go to sleep. And what does the, the, the Torah tell us? That these words we shall inscribe, the words of the Shema, the words of the Shema, the prayer of Shema, the text of the Torah, shall be inscribed upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. So any gateways, any doorposts shall have these words. Does that mean we take a pen and we write on the doorpost these words? The Torah doesn't tell us exactly how to do it, but we will learn, of course, in the oral tradition, the explanation, how exactly this mitzvah is done. Quick question? Yes. Uh, Usually, the Torah is very uh, precise, but then when it says uh, doesn't say, uh, what we see, it doesn't say that people are on the right side. Exactly. So that's, uh, um, the Torah is not always precise. The Torah is usually not precise. As we mentioned many times, we learned a couple of weeks ago about the concept of shechita, slaughtering. Right? All the Torah says, you shall slaughter. It doesn't say where to slaughter, how to slaughter. It doesn't say any details. It says to fill in. It says you shall bind them as a sign on your arm. Doesn't give any details where on the arm, what color it should be, what you should exactly you should write, how the strap should be, all the knots, all the details were passed down orally. That means tradition was passed down to Moses, back down, uh, continuing down until it was transcribed by the Mishnah and the Talmud, and that's what we're going to look upon soon. Some of the details, but this is what the Torah says. It's a clear. It's one of the six hundred and thirteen commandments, mitzvahs given to the Jewish people to place a mezuzah on the doorpost of your home. Now, what's the reason? Last question. Uh, so on, the, on the right side means like right side when you walk in. Yes, we'll talk about how to put it up soon. But the, the general mitzvah is to, to write these, these words on your doorpost. Now let's talk, what's the reason for this? So we'll t- touch upon two things. Source number two, Maimonides, the Rambam tells us, Rabbi Moshe, son of Maimon, merited to be at his gravesite in Tiberias in Israel. He writes like this, A person must show great care in the observance of the mitzvah of mezuzah, because because it is an obligation which is constantly incumbent upon everyone. It's not a one-time mitzvah you put on to fill in, and then you know, of course, you have the effect of the mitzvah or kosher. When you're eating, you eat kosher, but when you're not eating, uh, you're not involved in this mitzvah. Or you may have it in you, but you're not directly involved. But a mezuzah is a obligation which is constant. There is an obligation that on your home, on the doorposts of your home, there should be a mezuzah. So once there you put up a mezuzah, every second you are fulfilling this obligation. Through it, so it's an important mitzvah. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a once you do it, 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 it uh, carries through for forever. As long as it's kosher. Through its observance, whenever a person enters or leaves his or the, the house, he will encounter the unity of the name of the Holy One, blessed be He, and remember His love for Him. This will motivate Him to regain full awareness and follow the path of the upright. So the Rambam, Maimonides, is telling us, what does it say in the mezuzah? It says in the mezuzah, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. It says the proclamation of our faith, that we believe in God, we believe in one God, we believe in God, the creator of the world, and the God, God who is intimately involved in everything that happens in this world. That when a leaf falls off the tree, there's a purpose, there's a reason, nothing happens by chance. There is divine providence. <coughs> And when this is in the mezuzah, and we see God's name in the mezuzah, and when it's placed on our doorposts, 
and we'll see soon eye level it's not placed too low not too high it's placed in a play in a in a in a position that catches our eyes when we leave the house when we come into the house it's a reminder so Maimonides is telling us the idea of this mitzvah is that it's a constant reminder you come into the house you come home from work you come home from school you come into the house you see the mezuzah you say I'm going to be nice to my, to my spouse I'm going to be kind to my children I'm going to behave like a mensch as a Jewish person should because there's a God there's a God that's watching me there's a God that created me and this is the way, way I should follow so the mezuzah is a reminder Maimonides tells us it's a reminder to follow the paths of the upright that's one concept another concept in a mezuzah is in 1976, in June or, or July, what happened? There was a Air France plane flight that was hijacked by a group of terrorists. Yes, and they diverted. The plane was going from France, I believe, from Paris to, to Israel. Tel Aviv to Paris. And they hijacked the plane and diverted it. To, they landed in Entebbe, in Uganda. And about a year ago, the Chabad Center in Uganda opened. <laughs> so there's, I guess, some Jews over there. But 40 years ago or so, there was um, many Jews, uh, over 100, 103, 104 Jews that were on this plane and separated from the rest of the passengers who were, who were you know, sent home. And they were held hostage there for a couple of days. They were threatened. They were surrounded with explosives. And they were, the terrorists were threatening. Uh, they were demanding um, or, uh, prisoners from Israel or money, whatever it was. And they threatened... Huh? Oh, right. How could I forget? Right, <laughs> right. Yes, about three, year, uh, three years ago or two years? I think two years ago, we had um, Ruvi, uh, Ruvi, Ruven, Sassi Ruven. Last name is Ruven. Sassi Ruven, who was one of the first... He He told us the story firsthand. He was one of the soldiers that was... The first off the plane, that, so what happened? They were held hostage there, and the Israelis uh, made as if they were going to negotiate, and surprise attack, they landed with a, a, you know, a few planes uh, with, with soldiers, and they, they did a, a raid, a uh, raid on Entebbe, I think that's the name of the movie, and they, were, you know, miraculously, if you can say, brought back, brought back almost all of the, the, the hostages, one or two were killed, um, uh, you know, in the process, uh, unfortunately, uh, and and uh, Bibi Netanyahu's brother, um, what was his name? Um, Yon, uh, Yon, no. Yoni, 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 Yoni. Yeah, he's a, he, unfortunately he he um, you know took a hit. But uh, all in all, it was very miraculous. During the time of this hostage, a couple of days, you can imagine the, the world at large, uh, especially the Jewish world, was shooken up, what's happening. And the Rebbe had a response. The Lubavitcher Rebbe from his synagogue, his shul in Crown Heights, 770 Eastern Parkway, said that those families who, members of their family are being held hostage, should check their mezuzahs. Check the homes, and not all of them, or most of them, were not, in, you know, weren't uh, religious families officially. So he dispatched his 
his Hasidim in, in Jerusalem or around Israel to visit those families and help them if they didn't have a mezuzah, to put up a mezuzah, to fix them, to check the mezuzahs, get them, make sure they're put up properly. And the Rebbe reported back that almost every family of those that were taken hostage, there was something wrong. Either a doorpost was missing a mezuzah or a mezuzah wasn't kosher or was put up wrong. Something was wrong. So, thank God, miraculously, you know, they put up the mezuzahs and there was uh, this whole, you know, um, this whole uh, miracle, miracle thank you, right, miracle ending. But people, a lot of, and especially with some Hasidic groups or people that were very upset with the Rebbe's words, and they said, how can you say that if someone doesn't put up a mezuzah, you know, that's why they're taken hostage. It sounded like from the Rebbe's words as if, that, you know, these families, there was something wrong with the mezuzah, and look what happened to them, right? And there was another instance, it was in 1974, this was earlier, it was in uh, Yesod Hamala, which is in the north of Israel, small, uh, a city um, where a group of uh, students from a school went on a trip, an overnight, and they stayed in a school building somewhere, and terrorists came from, from Syria or you know, nearby, Lebanon, I'm not sure exactly where, and they barged into the, broke into the building and they killed 21 students. Actually, that was by their graves. They were buried in, in, in Tzfas, I believe, in Tzfas, and they have a whole section there. They were, they were killed. And I some of the... Olympic game. No, no, was no, that was in Germany, you're right. That's a similar, another story in uh, 73, oh, what was it, 72. 72. Munich. And again, the Rebbe said that they should check the mezuzahs of those families or the school. I think it was the school building where these children learned. And there was exactly 21 mezuzahs that were, that were, that were, not, that were missing or, or in, were not valid or were written properly. And again, people, or this, was, this happened actually before the other story, and people came with this complaint. And the Rebbe explained himself. And he said, he said that a mezuzah, in addition to being a reminder, like Maimonides told us, a mezuzah serves as a helmet. In Hebrew we say uh, kas, kasada, I think. Kas, kasada. Uh, a helmet, a protection. So if somebody goes out uh, on a bike, on a motorcycle without a helmet, does that mean that he's going to die or he's going to hurt himself? Nope. I've been on a bike, thank God, without a helmet and I'm, I'm still there. I didn't hurt myself. But if the person trips, if he falls and he falls and there's a, an accident and he doesn't have a helmet, then it's very possible that he can die. Many people, I know someone here in Seagate, they had a motorcycle and they had a cra an accident and the doctors told her if you were not wearing a helmet, you wouldn't be here today. The helmet saved her life, right? So a helmet is a protection. If something happens, the helmet can save your life. It doesn't mean that if you don't have a helmet that you're going to die. Or if you wear a seatbelt, you know, you, I have driven many times without a seatbelt. But... You're lucky if, you're, if someone, God forbid, is in an accident or something happens and you have a seatbelt, it can save your life. So that's a mezuzah. The Torah teaches us that mezuzah brings us protection. It brings us Hashem's extra watch and extra blessings and protection. It doesn't mean that if we don't have a mezuzah that something bad is going to happen. But if something is destined to happen, there's a, there's gonna, you're gonna be, someone's going to be supposed to is gonna be held hostage or something and they have a mezuzah, so... They have the extra protection. Or there's uh, this terrorist that might do something and they have a mezuzah, so you have that extra protection. 
That's the way the Rebbe explained it. Not that God forbid that if someone doesn't do a mitzvah, then the punishment for that is, is uh, being taken hostage. So where does this come from? Where does it come from that a mezuzah is a protection? We see that a mezuzah is a reminder. We said it's on the door. It reminds us of God. Where does it come from that it's a protection? So let's look in source number three. The next verse after the Torah tells us to write it and inscribe it on a doorpost. Source three tells us, in order that your days may increase and the days of your children. That's how the Shema continues. Your days and the days of your children shall be lengthened, shall, be, shall increase. The Torah says clearly that by putting up a mezuzah, you will have extra blessings. And continuing in source 3, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from now and to eternity. It's a verse in Psalms and the commentaries explain this is referring to a mezuzah. Someone who places a mezuzah, the Lord will guard your going out. When a person leaves his house, he goes to work, he goes out on a trip somewhere. And on his house he has a mezuzah, God will guard your going out and your coming in. So having a mezuzah on your, on your home is not only a protection. When you're in the home, so you're protected. This helmet is a spiritual kind of helmet. And if in your home, the place where you own, where you pay rent, where you belong, is called your home, and you has a mezuzah, then wherever you go, you have that spiritual helmet um, surrounding you and protecting you. The Talmud tells us a story. The Talmud tells us there was a man named Unculus. If you open up any Chumash, almost every Torah book that has the Torah, has on the side a translation to Aramaic called Unculus. Where does this come from? Unculus lived about 2,000 years ago. He was a nephew of the Roman, Roman Emperor Hadrian. And his father's name was uh, Colonicos. And this guy, Unculus, was a brilliant man and very close to his uncle. And he studied all kinds of uh, sciences and all kinds of uh, you know wisdoms, the best teachers. And at one point, he was um, you know, growing up in the palace. He asked his uncle for, for permission to go out into the world. And, you know, he's growing up in the palace, but he wants to go meet the people and to see, uh, learn business and uh, see all other cultures in the world. And he asked his uncle for some advice. He says, what kind of advice can you give me? You're such a successful person. What kind of advice could you give me? So his uncle tells him, look for, you know, you go, you, you're looking for business to become wealthy. Look for a material, look for a product that is very cheap because nobody sees its value. You should buy it because it's cheap. And then you will teach people what, why this is important. Teach people what they can use it for and how valuable it is. And then you'll sell it and you'll make money. You'll be in demand. That was his advice. Okay, he takes off. And he goes around, he visits city by city and all different kinds of people. And he comes to the Jews. And he is smart man, brilliant man. And he begins to interact with the Jewish people. And he's really attracted to it. And he starts to see that his beliefs, the, the Catholicism uh, and whatever, he, whatever religion he came from was questionable. And he started to study and study. And eventually he converted. And, and um, yeah. He was sitting in Jerusalem and uh, basking in the, in the yeshiva and the great rabbis. I think he was a student of Rabbi Lezer ben Horkinus, one of the great sages, Rabbi Lezer, who was mentioned in the Mishnah Talmud. Eventually, word got back to his uncle. It took time because there was no uh, faxes back then or emails or texts. 
Eventually, it gets back to him, and he's very upset. <laughs> Emperor, Roman Emperor, his nephew, goes to some group of, of, of Jews and, and converts. So he dispatches a group of soldiers to bring him back at once. There's a group of soldiers come to him, and Uncleus, being a brilliant and very charismatic person, starts to talk to them, and uh, eventually, talking, talking to them, and they start asking questions, what are you doing here? They got so enamored by his, uh, you know, his philosophy, what he was telling him about the Jewish people, that they all converted as well, and they joined him. This is what the Talmud says. And his uncle sees they're not coming back, and he heard that they were persuaded. He sends a second group of soldiers. And this time tells them, don't talk to him. Just put him in. You know, just take him. Don't ask him any questions. What he's doing, just bring him here. The second group goes. And, and also they, they um, the Talmud says that they came and he asked them. I just, want, he said, I just want to tell you one thing. And he told them that um, you guys work for your soldiers and guards of the emperor. You are guarding the outer courtyard, right? And then there's an inner guard the, the guarding the inner chamber, and then another guard, right? And, and the emperor is in the chamber all the way on the inside. And he said that God is... It says that when Jewish people were traveling in the desert, Hashem, there was a pillar of fire leading the Jewish people. Right? So here, your emperor is all the way on the inside, and God is leading the Jewish people on the outside, and, and they got very inspired. He talked to, talked to them into this, and they also stayed. So he sent a, a third group. This time he said, don't listen to nothing. Just bring him in chains. So he said, okay. They get to him, and he's going out the door. He's handcuffed, and what he does, he just kisses the mezuzah with such uh, feeling and such love that they, they were so intrigued. They said, what are you doing? Kissing the doorpost? Like, well, you, you're insane? So he told them, look at your emperor. He is all the way in, deep into his chambers. And he has all of you guards protecting him and watching him. But our king, the king of the Jewish people, the creator of the universe, Hashem, we are in the inside and he is on the outside protecting us. So the mezuzah is exactly the Talmud tells us. The mezuzah is sort of Hashem's protection on the outside of our doors protecting us not that the emperor need not like the emperor who needs protectors and whose guards to protect him because he's obviously not that powerful because somebody might come and kill him but our god is not afraid our king is not afraid of anyone our king stands on the outside of our homes protecting our homes that's what the talmud says so we see that's some of the sources that the mezuzah is a helmet the mezuzah is a protection and brings extra blessings to those that live in the home. So in, in the end, the Roman Emperor was so upset that he eventually destroyed uh, Jerusalem because... <laughs> the Talmud says, the end of the story is that he, after the third group of soldiers didn't come back, he let him be. But eventually, he, he asked that his, he, said, he swore to his nephew, he's not going to harm him, just please come back, he wants to hear like, what, what happened. So his nephew came back and told him, I listened to your advice. He said, like, why, why would you join the Jewish people? They're persecuted. They're, they're you know, um, why would you join them? So he said, I listened to your advice. You told me to find a product which is cheap and nobody thinks there's any value to it. And then teach people of its value. So he said, I found the Jewish people. There are, you know, a couple million Jewish people and their value, people don't value them as much as should be. And 
I'm here. I teach people the, the beauty of, of, of Judaism. Okay. So that's the story of, of Unculus. Let's see in source number four. Oh, this is, these are actually we had the words that he told them. The standard practice, source number four, the standard practice throughout the world is that a king of flesh and blood sits inside his palace and his servants stand guard protecting him outside. But with regard to the Holy One, blessed be he, his servants, the Jewish people, sit inside their homes and he guards them guards over them outside. Now, it doesn't mean that the mezuzah is like this holy power in there, that this little this scroll, a mezuzah scroll has like some sort of power in there. It's obviously because it's a mitzvah. God said to put a mezuzah on your door, so when we put the mezuzah on the door, we have Hashem, Hashem's blessing, Hashem's protection. It's not like the mezuzah itself has a power. It's when it's done properly and put up in the proper place and done the way Hashem wants us to do it, then Hashem says, you have my protection. Source number five. So how is a mezuzah written? Source five. How is a mezuzah written? Maimonides tells us the two portions, Shema and Vahaya Im Shema, the two paragraphs of the Torah, are written on one piece of parchment in a single column. One must take care regarding the crowns on, on the letters in a mezuzah. After rolling it, one should place it in a tube and affix it to the doorpost of one's entrance with a nail. Okay, so here is a mezuzah. I'm sure... I've been to most of your homes and you've seen this, but this is a mezuzah. You see the first paragraph starts with Shema. The second paragraph starts with Vahaya im Shema. Those are the two paragraphs of Shema. 22 lines corresponding to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And 713 letters. Every letter in the mezuzah, every word is written exact. And this is a nice mezuzah. It's a piece of parchment, as you can see from the back. Some of this made from the neck of a cow. Um, the skin of a cow and in the special factories, a lot of them are in Israel, where they manufacture and they make from the skin of an animal. It takes a long process of weeks to transform a piece of hide into parchment which is able to be written on. It's not paper. Unfortunately, uh, this is a piece of paper that I found in someone's mezuzah and you can rip it just like that because it's a piece of paper, it's not parchment. And they're actually trying to make it look like it's parchment by printing it on such a kind of paper. And this is called forgery. It's false. They make a photocopy of a mezuzah. This is a piece of paper and it is worthless. Right? It has to be on a piece of parchment. That's the way it has to be done. And, and who does it? Maybe who does it? Uh, no, I don't think it's a scribe because if he's a scribe, then he would write it. These are Judaica stores or all kinds of store especially in Israel people come there and they want to buy a mezuzah they'll stick this in right why I don't know obviously they are they are either not educated maybe they think this is good enough but it seems like they know because they specifically use such a paper which should look like it's real as if it has you know these blotches on the back so they're <laughs> call them what you want but maybe they don't know I don't know okay I don't know who did it but the fact is that I found this many such mezuzahs even here in Seagate and people's houses. I found the Ten Commandments written in Roman letters in, uh, in someone's mezuzah here in Seagate, which of course has nothing to do with a mezuzah. A mezuzah has to be these, part, these things. So this is written by a scribe with a feather like we spoke about the tefillin. This is not printed. This is handwritten by a trained scribe. And that's the mezuzah. So and it should be... You said this. 
713 letters? Yes, 713 letters, 22 lines. You said 713. You said 713. I thought like it should be 613. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's, it's, the, it's the wording is exactly the way it says in the Torah. The, the number 713 is significant because it spells the word teshuva, which means to return to God because the mezuzah is about returning to Hashem, reminding us of Hashem. Oh, well, let's continue because... What? What's better, not to have any or to have a non-kosher Not to have any, I would say, because if you, don't ha if you have a non-kosher one, then you're not pushed to put up a kosher one. But if you don't have any, every time you look at the doorpost, it's a reminder to put up a kosher mezuzah. Yes, it's like putting up an alarm system and uh, the wires are not connected. So everything looks beautiful, or let's say you have a... Uh, chandelier, right? You have a beautiful chandelier and you have a beautiful uh, light switch. It could be gold plated and everything looks beautiful. But if you turn on, if the wires are not connected, then if the wires, it's a tiny little wire, but it has to be touching. And if it's not touching, it's not going to work. So you can have a beautiful mezuzah case, big, beautiful, and you can have a nice photocopy or something wrong with the mezuzah inside. And it could look all beautiful, but if but if it's not if it's not connected, if it's not connected to Hashem, if it's not done properly the way it's supposed to be done, then it's not going to work. Or it's not going to work properly. Right? Yes. Um, years ago, way back when I was a kid, it was very popular in Judaic stores and whatnot. If you had a war of mezuzah jewelry on your neck, of mezuzah, mm -hmm. you had the Star of David, a mezuzah, or a high. And That's fine. There's nothing wrong with wearing a mezuzah. There's nothing wrong with. I get it. And my thing is, if you wear that around your neck and it's deemed to be kosher, it's kosher, but it's not the, the mitzvah. The mitzvah is what God said. God said to put on a doorpost, we should put on a doorpost. You want to, you want to have a necklace? That's fine. Your my grandmother used to wear, she used to have headaches and she wanted to wear a mezuzah. It helped. So, so, so she put on a mezuzah. That's fine. If it works, it works. But we're out to fulfill the mitzvah of the Torah. So let's, let's move along. So. We can move on. We're not just going to talk about mezuzah today. So, source number six. A dwelling which has many doorways requires a mezuzah for each and every doorway. It must be placed at the right-hand side as one enters the house, as Gennady mentioned before. If it is placed on the left-hand side, it is invalid. It is a mitzvah to place the mezuzah at the beginning of the upper third of the doorpost. So here are some of the details. There are many details to putting up a mezuzah, but some of the important ones are that it's not just a front door. It used to be that a room like this was considered a big house. So we had one door, you had one mezuzah. Nowadays we're blessed with big houses, and if you live in Bel Air, you have many mezuzahs, many doorways. Rabbi Brickman, I think, has 35 mezuzahs in his house. You know, you have four floors with an attic, then you have lots of doorways. So... Any any doorway in the house. Yes. What does the Torah say? It says upon the doorposts of your house. It doesn't say just the front doorpost. Uh, on the left hand side, should not it should not be done on the left hand side, and it should be the beginning of the upper third. So you know, calculate, split your doorpost into three parts, and it should be the bottom of the mezuzah should be at the beginning of the upper third or a little bit higher. That, that way it's about shoulder or eye level where you can see it. Source number seven. It is customary for the scribe to write God's name, Shin Dalid Yud, one of God's names, on the back of the mezuzah, okay? So the mezuzah is rolled up, right, like this, it's rolled up and placed, you know, in a case on the doorpost. And on the back of the mezuzah, when it's rolled up, you can see it over here. See, that's another show that this is not the proper place because they, write, they wrote this... They wrote this thing too low. This this Shindal Yod is supposed to be up here. 
like you see over here, it's supposed to, exactly where there's a space between the two paragraphs, that is where it should be on the other side. Three letters, God's name, Shin, Dalit, and Yud. This name, continuing in Source 7, this name can be seen as an acronym for the words Guardian of the Doors of Israel. Shin, Dalit, Yud. Shin stands for the word Shomer. What does Shomer mean? A guard. Dalit is Dal Delet. Door. Yud is Israel, the guardian of the homes and the doors of Israel. That is God's name, which is associated with, with our extra protection. So that is a custom, it's not a mitzvah, meaning it's kosher without it, but it's a custom to uh, many hundreds of years to put this on the outside of the mezuzah. When it's rolled up, all you see is that, the shindal yud, and that should be facing, that should be facing the outside. So when it sees it, right away they see God's name here, and it's visible. Source 8. A mezuzah placed on private property should be checked twice in seven years, at least. Many have a custom, it's brought down to check more often, once a year, or if there's a reason to check, somebody is ill, something happened, uh, you know, a break-in, a robbery, that we checked them in mezuzahs. But the reason why it needs to be checked is because over time it can deteriorate and things can go wrong, the ink can smudge, and I can tell you, checking many mezuzahs here in Seagate, it happens very often. Uh, I'll show you some samples here. Checked, picked up, uh, took out someone's mezuzah, and as you can see, the whole inside, the ink just is faded. It's not good. Every letter needs to be intact and written properly. Somebody else's mezuzah was like this. I don't know if this ever was kosher, but this is what I found inside. You can't read anything. It's just smudge of ink. And similar, these are small ones, but it happens to, you know, just from being a long time uh, crunched together in a small case. Even big ones like this, like this mezuzah is not even kosher because there's something wrong uh, on this line over here. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But the, the scribe gave this to me as a sample to use for, for teaching. Uh, maybe there's a letter missing or something is not written properly and it's invalid. So it can look beautiful, but it has to be precise. It has to be perfect, just like a helmet. If the helmet has a little piece missing over there, if you land over there, you can break your head. That's why it's important to check the mezuzahs over time, the weather, or just time, or sometimes it was never written properly. So even if we buy a mezuzah, we should get it checked before we put it up. And if we didn't get it checked, we should always get it checked. And I paid, when I got married, I bought very expensive mezuzahs, um, over $100, and we checked them, and one of them wasn't good. So you never know, the scribe can make a mistake, he can overlook something with time. It's always important to keep checking. Many, uh, my custom is to check every year before Rosh Hashanah. That's a widespread custom to check. Always check the mezuzahs. So if a scribe knows he found an error that he made, what happened? Well, not always uh, that the, um, you're going back to the scribe that wrote the mezuzah. You give it into any scribe to check for you. What happens, it, the scribe is trained to know all of the laws. Some errors can be fixed, some are non-fixable. You have to take buy a new one. Each one is, uh, you know, each mistake. There, there are thousands of laws that go into to the, to the writing, the design of each letter, and, and all the, the, you know, the details. So, it's definitely important to check. And that's why mezuzah is not, it doesn't cost $5 because first of all, it's a piece of parchment, it's not a photocopy, it's not a piece of paper. And somebody went to sofa school, scribe school for, it takes about a year, at least a year to train just to know how to write it. And then you have to learn all the laws and you have to get tested and it's a whole system, you know, at least two, three years to, to uh, and then you have to practice, get better and better at it. So such a mezuzah is considered a nice mezuzah. This mezuzah probably costs about $75. 
and mezuzah is going to be more, much more expensive. But a decent mezuzah, even the ones that you know we use here very often for forty-two dollars or forty-five dollars or fifty dollars, takes about two hours to write. It can take a scribe minimum an hour and a half to write such a mezuzah, probably more between between one and a half and three hours. And after he writes it, he has it has to be checked over by somebody, which takes you have to pay a person to check it over, and you're paying for the material, and then. Um, you know, with, for the ink and everything that goes into it, and sometimes they computer check it. So there's you're just paying for somebody's time. So forty two dollars is, you know, a bargain. He's getting less than twenty dollars an hour because someone else has to check it. And sometimes he can start writing, and then he makes a mistake, and he has to put it in the garbage. He has to put it aside because it's it's non fixable. So that's why mezuzahs are sometimes costly. You know, there was this uh, guy comes to the, his rabbi, reform rabbi. And he says, Rabbi, what should I do? My, my, uh, my son went to Israel. You know, they're not religious, they're reform. And uh, my son went to Israel and he got caught up with these religious guys and he's studying Torah in a yeshiva. He's becoming religious. He wants us to become kosher and he wants us to put mezuzahs up and to, to go to synagogue every day. And uh, it's Soros, you know. <laughs> so the rabbi says, you know, Mike, I think you got to check your mezuzah. Something's wrong. Right? Even the, the joke that whenever there's a problem, you check your mezuzahs. That's the lesson that uh, we always should have in mind. You know, remember to check our mezuzah. Let's conclude the mezuzah part with source number nine. Mezuzah. That's the word. Mem, zu, za. So zu and ze, those are the Hebrew letters, allude. We're going to split the word in three parts. Mem, the letter mem, which is the number 40 in Hebrew. Zu and ze, mezuzah or ze. Zu and ze allude to the male and female principles in creation. Right? Ze is the male way of saying this or that. This man, you say ze, and you say this woman, you say isha zu. This woman. So in Hebrew, you say different. This or this for a male or female is different. So ze is the male. Zu is the female. So Zen and Zu allude to the male and female principles in creation, which are most fundamentally the cosmic groom and bride, God and the Jewish people. God is the male, and the Jewish people are the female, the recipient of God, of God's... Um, when, and which are reflected in the husband and wife in the physical home itself. The Mem, preceding these two pronouns, alludes to the Torah which was given to Moses at the end of 40 days, 40 being the numerical value of the letter Mem, right? We learned that Moses was on the mountain for, when you want to put on silent so it doesn't disturb us, the letter Mem is the number 40, which is alluding to the Torah, which Moses was on the mountain, on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and then got, and got the Torah there. So the word mezuzah, together, Mem, Zuzah, is the husband and wife, or God and the Jewish people, Zu and Zeh, the male and female, and the Mem, which is the Torah. So the word mezuzah thus alludes to the domestic harmony with, between husband and wife, as well as to that between God and the Jewish people, which is ultimately possible only when the relationship is governed by the principles of the Torah. So the Mem is the Torah, and the relationship between Zu and Zah, the, the male and the female, it's through the Torah. That's how we connect to Hashem. And the same thing when husband and wife, in male and female, in the Jewish home, the, when we have the Torah, the guides, the guidelines of the Torah, the, the teachings of the Torah, the lessons of the Torah, that brings the ultimate harmony between husband and wife.
Okay, let's turn the page to the next two ideas. Just, you know, there was this uh, two neighbors. One was a Jewish family, one was a non-Jewish family. So the non-Jewish neighbor is talking to his Jewish neighbor and he says, um, you know, we had, a, had in our house a couple of break-ins. We had some robberies in the recent weeks. You know, what should, have you, did they break into your house also? They seem to be picking on me. And the Jewish man says, no, we, we haven't had any break-ins. And the, the other neighbors, the neighbor's like, it's interesting because they're right next to each other. Why would they only come to my house? So the Jewish man says, well, probably my mezuzah because we know that a mezuzah is protection and protects us against anything. It's like a spiritual lock on our doors, a good alarm system. And maybe you should try a mezuzah, you know? So the neighbor says, sure, how much does it cost? He's like, oh, it's not too expensive, you know, $40. Sure, he puts up a mezuzah on his door and he's waiting to see what's going to happen. Sure enough, a few days later, they meet up again and he says, so, how are things? And the non-Jewish neighbor says, we didn't have any break-ins, but we had a lot of people coming to ask us for charity. <laughs> it was cheaper for them to break in. <laughs> right? But that leads us to the next topic, charity. So the first identifying sign of a Jewish home is we bring God into the home. We have a sign on the door that reminds us of Hashem. The mezuzah reminds us of God and brings God's extra protection into our homes. But also, a Jewish home is a home, a house of charity, a charitable home, a hospitable home. Source 10. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, Abraham, the first Jew, was 99 years old, three days after his, having his circumcision, and he gets a visitor. Who visits him? God. Now the Lord appeared to him in the plains of Mamre. Mamre was a friend of Avram. And he was sitting at the entrance of the tent when the day was hot. And he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing beside him. And he saw and he ran toward them from the entrance of the tent and he prostrated himself to the ground. Abraham, Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the desert at the third day after his circumcision. And what does he see? He sees three men coming and he runs towards them and the Torah continues to say how he invites them into his tent and he says, please. And they look at him and they see these, he's a little, you know, he just had a surgery uh, at this age and they say, no, we don't want to bother you. And he says, Come inside, it's my honor. And he was sitting there at the entrance of his tent, actually looking, waiting for guests to come. Avraham, the first Jew, was the epitome of hospitality. He, he was a kind person, and he was inviting people always to his tent to care for them. And Source 10 says that the Lord appeared to him, and while God was visiting him, all of a sudden Abraham takes off and, tent, and tends to his guest. Is that respectful? Anyone is, visit, is, is, is talking to you, came to visit you, uh, it's not nice to run off on them. And here Hashem himself, God was visiting him, and Avram takes off. And the Talmud learns from this story that inviting guests, hosting guests, is more important than receiving, than, than um, greeting the Shekhinah, greeting God's presence. Abram had God's presence here. He could have thought, I'm here with God. You know, I should go tend to the guests or find somewhere else to go. The Talmud says, Abraham set an example and taught us that greeting guests, welcoming people into our home, caring for others is more important than, than um, greeting God himself, so to say. For example, there was 
someone praying, a great chassid praying, and the middle of his prayer is where you're not supposed to interrupt, they're not supposed to talk to people or do anything, you're supposed to just in the middle of Shmona Esri, you know, when everyone stands up and is quiet and is praying, he saw one of the students, one of the teachers in the yeshiva, and he saw one of the students, his shoes were ripped, and in the middle of his prayers, he went and he motioned to someone to get the shoes for this, for this boy that his shoes were ripped and it was cold outside, in the middle of his prayers, because yes, he was praying and talking to God, but what's more important is to care for somebody else, to be, to be caring for others. So Avraham, the first Jew, set the example. And what did he do? Source 11. He planted an Eishel. The Torah says he planted an Eishel in Be'er Sheba, one of Israel's cities till today. And he called there in the name of the Lord, the God of the world. He called out to people. He inspired people to worship God and not idols. But what does it mean he planted an Eishel? So Rashi tells us, one says, two opinions. One says that it was an orchard from which to bring fruit fruits for the guests at the meal, and one says that it was an inn for lodging, in which there were all sorts of fruits. Avram pitched a tent, which had four doors, a door in each direction. You didn't want people to not, to not see the door. And by the way, that's why a chuppah, when uh, husband and wife, a chassan and kala, bride and groom, stand under, under the canopy by the Jewish ceremony for a marriage, the chuppah is open from four sides, and it is, it is symbolic of Abraham's tent, which was doors on each side. It was a tent that everyone was welcome to come in wherever, in any direction. And this is sort of like a blessing for the bride and groom that their home shall be an open home, a hospitable home. That's part of the Jewish home. A home where doors are open on each side where everyone feels comfortable and welcome to come in. The canopy is like a home on top with four, wall, you know, four pillars and door on each side. But Avram, pitching his tent there and welcoming all kinds of people, Jewish, non-Jewish, at that time, he welcomed everybody. And he taught them about God. And not just taught them, but he cared for them. Even people that worshipped idols, he took care of them. And he didn't just give them, as we see in Source 12. Abraham represents the embodiment of kindness. He did not merely give his guests the minimal requirements for survival. Tepid water, stale bread, and a pinch of salt. Rather, he gave them fabulous food and displayed tremendous hospitality. He gave them tongue, it says, these men that came. He gave them milk. He gave them bread. He gave them the best food in the middle of a desert without charging. Each of us has inherited Abraham's attribute of kindness, right? We inherit, it. We inherit attributes from our parents. Abraham is our great-great-grandfather. And Abraham gave to us his children and grandchildren, this attribute of kindness. Hence, we have the capacity to give of ourselves in the same manner as Abraham. We can assist and help others not only with their vital necessities, but rather we can go above and beyond the call of duty and help others in a truly limitless fashion. And Jewish people are very good at that. Most, uh, I think, I don't know the numbers now, but I heard that out of all the charity that Americans give, a big, big percentage of it are Jewish people. Jewish philanthropists that give charity. Jewish people are known to be extremely charitable and kind, and they have all kinds of organizations that help each other out, whether it's Hatzalah here just last week, we had to call Hatzalah, somebody fell, whether it's Hatzalah, which is a voluntary um, you know, ambulance service, or all kinds, there's so many organizations of helping each other. This comes from Abraham, and that's a Jewish home. A Jewish home is a place where it's not just a home for the people living there, but it's a place where guests and other family members, community members are welcomed in to feel and, and, and fed and, and felt 
made to feel comfortable. To this end, the Rebbe suggested, source 13, 1988, the Rebbe made a suggestion. In every kitchen, permanently affixed in front of where the food is prepared, should be a charity box to aid those in need of the most elementary needs of food and drink. The charity box should be in a prominent place in the kitchen where visitors, neighbors, and friends will notice it so that they too will be reminded of their charitable obligations towards others. A couple of months ago, a good few months ago, I think it was in the summer, we learned about charity, the importance, and the Rebbe had a pushka campaign that we should always have a pushka charity box, not just to give to the poor, but to train ourselves to be givers, to be generous and constantly give. But the Rebbe said that in the kitchen, in the center, you're preparing your food, put a charity box there to remind you that there are others that are, that are less fortunate and we should give charity towards others and we should invite others to join us for our meals. And other people that can come in will, will take notice. But not just to have the charity box there on the table or on the counter. Source 14, the Rebbe suggested that the charity box should become, should be nailed into the wall, should become part of the home. When the charity box is affixed to the wall or elsewhere, Jewish law considers it a permanent and integral part of the house. It's part of the house, not something in the house. The walls of the house, the charity box is screwed into the house. It's part of the house. Therefore, the house may now be considered a house of charity. It's a charitable house. For part of it is permanently devoted to charity. It's not just something temporary that's just moved around. It's something there that's nailed into the wall. This is a house of charity. Like the mezuzah. The mezuzah is not just in the house or on your necklace. On your, the mezuzah is nailed into the wall. It has to be permanent. It can't just be hanging there. It needs to be nailed in. It's not going to fall off. A wind is not going to blow it away. A charity box shouldn't just fall and be misplaced. A charity box should be nailed into the wall. should be screwed into the kitchen wall or other place in the house. It is a charitable house. That is something that identifies the first Jew. Abraham was a kind person, a charitable person. Every Jewish house is a house, should be a house of charity. The Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, who grew up in, who lived in Mezhibush in Ukraine, was, was born to his parents when they were very old. The story goes that his father was uh, like, like Abraham and Sarah. His father was 100, his mother was 90, and they were old, they were childless. His name was Eliezer, his wife's name was Sarah, I believe. And they were extremely hospitable people, very hospitable. Every Shabbos, they had lots of guests over, and all kinds of people, whatever, however they were dressed, however, whatever level of observance everyone was welcome in their house and up in heaven the angels were reporting to God look at this man such a hospitable person such a kind person maybe he should get some attention some, some blessings so they decide they're going to test this person to see how true how, how good this person really is and Eliyahu Anavi Elijah the prophet is dispatched from heaven to go visit and test this Eliezer. And he shows up Shabbos afternoon with a, you know, his, bag, his, his uh, suitcase or his backpack with him. And it's a little town. It wasn't measurable. His parents lived in a place called Akup. Ak no, it wasn't measurable. His parents lived in a, a little like village, Akup. I don't know how to, something, a little place. 
So if a man shows up on Shabbos, they know, obviously, he came here on Shabbos. Everyone know, knows who, who's in town. And he obviously is desecrating the Shabbos. And some of the people sitting at the table when he arrived were making smirks and making, hey, look at this Jew, he, he uh, came here on Shabbos, traveling from out of town on Shabbos. But Eliezer welcomed him and said, good Shabbos, and took a, gave him a room and said, come to the table. And the guests were very upset, you know, why, why, how can he join us as such a Jew? And Eliezer didn't give in to the guests. He was f fine and, and caring and kind. And, and the whole time he, he treated him very, very well, despite his guests being very upset. After Shabbos... The man, you know, was on his way out, and Elijah the prophet is on his way out, and Eliezer escorted him, didn't say a word, anything about his, his level of observance, greeted him, that's another custom when we have guests to greet them to the door, and the man turned to him, Elijah said, I am Elijah the prophet, and I was sent here to test you, and you passed the test, and from heaven you will be blessed with a son who will illuminate the world, and a short time later, Nine months later, a year later, they had a son, Yisroel Baal Shem Tov. And that's what the Baal Shem Tov taught. It taught us to care for other Jews, no matter what level of observance, to welcome everybody into their homes. And we'll conclude with the final section here. Another identifying sign of a Jewish home is like the room we're sitting in. The Rebbe suggested, source 15, fill your home with books that lift you higher. The title here is Higher Bookshelves. Fill your home with books that lift you higher, that lift your whole home higher. Their presence has an effect on you and your home. A Jewish home has Jewish books. Now, you don't have to have many, as many books as this room, maybe, but a Jewish home should have some Jewish books. Why? Source 16. Great authors put their mind, their personality, put their self into their book. You read someone's book, you can pick up their personality, you can pick up the person, their, their ideas from the book. When God authored the Torah, He put his essence, into, his essence and being into it. The Torah is God's book. It's God's wisdom. It was dictated to Moses. So God put Himself into His book. That's why we treat Torah books with such respect. We kiss them if they fall to the ground. We are careful to always place them right side up. And we never use them for anything other than reading and study. We don't use a book as a, a ping pong uh, bat, you know, to, to play ping a frisbee, right? It's regarded with respect because God authored this book and He put Himself into it. Torah books have a certain holiness. Maybe not as much as a Torah scroll, but books are holy. They are not disregarded. They are buried if they are worn out or not usable. They are buried in a Jewish cemetery. Right? One of the ways that the non-Jews would make fun of Jews and ridicule them was by taking their books and burning them. The books was something precious to the Jewish people, not just because they were able to study from them, because they're holy books. The books of, of the Torah and, and other books which explain the, the, the Torah. All, tor all consider Torah books. Torah 17. Even if the books lie dormant on the shelves, they're not being used, they're just sitting there, their mere presence will permeate the entire home, positively influencing those who reside there both during the hours they spend inside the home as well as when they walk beyond the source, just like the mezuzah. If you have a mezuzah on your home, you have that spiritual protection. If you have that tzedakah box in, uh, screwed into your wall, then this is a charitable home. And when we have Jewish books in the home, we have a Torah, we have a Siddur, we have a code of Jewish law, we have some basic Jewish books. Just being in the home permeates the home and, inf and has a good influence on the people of the home, whether they're in their home or they're leaving the home or they're out of the home. 
Source 18. Sacred Jewish books visibly displayed at home will subconsciously express its owner's appreciation and reverence for these books, their values, their history, and their content, all the while encouraging the entire family and visitors to use them, read them, and learn from them. So in addition to the books just being there, even if they're locked away in a closet, but also if the books are put out and people to see, people see, this is a person, this is our father, our father or my spouse reverse these books. This is something important to them. And subconsciously it expresses their appreciation for that and inspires the people in the home to take a look at the books and maybe read them. A Torah environment created through Torah books creates a subtle yet constant atmosphere of holiness inspiring Jewish thought and practice and ultimately urging us to learn its teachings and enhance our lives one book at a time. So having Jewish books in the home identifies the home as a Jewish home even if we don't use them. But in addition to them just being there, it is a reminder to the people in the home, the children or people that come to visit, that these things are important to the people living in the home and, and also inspire the people to take a look at what's in the book. It doesn't have to be in Hebrew, it can be an English translation. Those are some of the things that identify a Jewish home. A mezuzah on the door, it's a ducker box in your wall, and... Jewish books, and there are books in English and all languages and Russian that are available um, that, that, that can be taken off the shelves to, um, you know, to learn and to be inspired. So that's a little bit about creating a sacred space. Next week we'll learn about humility. Okay. That's next week's topic.